All right, so let's go ahead and turn to chapter 15 in the confession, and we are doing the second half of paragraph 3 this morning. Paragraph 3, chapter 15 of life unto of repentance unto life and salvation. And primarily we'll be dealing this morning with the thought of true repentance. Um, Our text in the scriptures will be Ezekiel 36. So if you'll find in your Bible Ezekiel 36 and then chapter 15 in the confession. I want to pick up in chapter 36 of Ezekiel at verse number 16. Uh, Now, of course, anytime we pick up a passage in the middle of a chapter or in the middle of the text, uh, obviously some of the uh, context that we'll need to deal with, uh, we'll need to address that. But I want you to notice that the words here in the book of Ezekiel really deal with three main thoughts we're going to deal with. Uh, It deals with Israel's profaning of the name of God. Uh, It also deals with how God responds by uh, instructing Israel that his name is to be sanctified. And then he deals with the principle and the truth of a new heart and a new spirit. So look with me, Ezekiel 36, verse number 16. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man... When the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. Wherefore I poured out my fury, I poured my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land, and for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the heathen, and they were dispersed through the countries. According to their way, And according to their doings, I judge them. I think it's important we note that. According to their way and according to their doings, I judged them. And when they entered unto the heathen, whether they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said to them, these are the people of the Lord and are gone forth out of his land. But I had pity for mine holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, whether they went. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the heathen, whether ye went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes." For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and ye shall be my people and I will be your God. I will also save you from all your uncleannesses and I will call for the corn and will increase it and lay no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field that ye shall receive no more reproach of famine among the heathen. Then shall ye remember your own evil ways and your own doings that were not good, and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight 
for your iniquities and for your abominations. Not for your sakes do I this, saith the Lord God. Be it known unto you, be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. There are so many things we could touch on this morning with regard to what Ezekiel is writing here concerning uh, God's purposes and God's desires. You'll notice that the things that were being done under the, unto the people of Israel was because of their own doing. It was because of their own walk. It was being done because of their own profaning of God's holy name. But what's much most profound about this is the reality that the Lord God himself says, the reason that I am giving you this mercy and the reason that I'm giving you this repentance is not for your sake, but for my name's sake. Uh, we have really have to establish in our heart of hearts that even the very act of conversion, the act of our redemption, is not first and foremost for our sake, but it is so that His holy name will be magnified and His name will be glorified. It is only God who can take a, a sinner like you and I and can wash them and can give them this gift of repentance that they might be a glory to people around, not because of their own cleansing of themselves, but because of what God has done for them. Uh, even Ezekiel, when he was contextually dealing with Israel here, he's dealing with the reality of the reason why these punishments were coming upon them, the reason why these things were happening. But then in this beautiful picture of mercy, we see how God gave them this new heart. Uh, we looked a little bit last week at some characters in the Scripture who showed signs of being sorry but not brought to repentance. We looked at the reality of uh, King Ahab, who showed some remorse, but he did not show saving repentance. We looked at Judas Iscariot, who showed some remorse, but he did not show any repentance. We looked at Job and how Job uh, had this sense of unworthiness about himself. He, he abhorred his sin. He loathed himself uh, because of his uh, acts against uh, holy God. You'll notice in that paragraph three, the second half uh, says there, in the, the, about the fourth line down, uh, it says, and self-abhorrency. Uh, this is the, the idea of what true repentance really looks like. It is to abhor oneself, to loathe oneself because of what they have done. If you look again at Ezekiel 36, verse 31, notice there are some components of what true repentance looks like. First of all, we see there's a remembrance. There is a remembrance of your own evil ways. Uh, there is never going to be repentance until we remember our own evil ways and our doings. Notice how Ezekiel expresses this. He says, your, you remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good. Now, I shouldn't have to tell a group like this that sin is not good. Uh, I don't have to tell anyone here today, I, well, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe, I, maybe I'm making a lot of assumptions. Sin is, sin is not good. Uh, anything that is a violation of God's holy law is not good. But notice the emphasis is not on God's wrongdoings, God's evil ways, but on man's wicked ways and on man's wicked doings. So repentance always begins with a remembrance of your own evil ways. And then notice, not only is there a remembrance of that sin is not good and shall loathe yourselves, 
Now watch this. In your own sight. When you look upon your own self, you remember your own doings, your own sin, your own evil ways. You look at yourself. Sin becomes loathsome in your own sight. Ultimately, it's loathsome because we know that sin is against God. This is that aspect that we did not see in Ahab. This is that aspect we did not see in Judas Iscariot. But it is the aspect that we saw in Job last week when we looked. And Job was a converted man and he still abhorred himself. He loathed his sin, maybe even more so. You know, we have this idea in our Christian circles that our, our most important repentance is that saving repentance we talked about last week. But do you know our repentance as believers, we ought to be even more concerned about our own sin because we know the truth and because our eyes have been opened to our own doings and our own wicked ways. Nobody here today has to tell you and I that we do wicked things. Uh, we know that as believers today, we still have a tendency and a desire, quite frankly, to still do those things which we know are not pleasing to God. So he says that you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Your iniquities, your abominations. Not God's, not your circumstances, not your situation, your iniquities, your evil ways, your evil doings. True repentance is always marked by the reality of knowing what we really are. This self-abhorrency is, is a godly sorrow, without, without question, but it's also a detestation of sin. I detest it. I despise its presence. So that when I look at myself, I don't see something in and of itself that's beautiful other than what I see in the righteousness of Christ, but I see my own sin and there's nothing in it that's beautiful to me. There's nothing in it that makes me look and say, you know, maybe this sin is not as bad as it really is declared to be. Yet God never takes a light approach to sin. So he never says, well, you know, that sin's not so bad. So we have to keep in mind here that this abhorrency, this self-abhorrency will be true for every truly repentant person, however it's revealed. Now again, we have to be careful about judging another person's abhorrency. We have to be careful about judging someone else's loathing. Uh, remember, we're not supposed to take the approach to Pharisees as we learned during our studies on Wednesday night in the book of Matthew, uh, that we're supposed to walk around with our countenance sad and our face drooping and, and not taking care of ourselves because we're trying to draw attention to ourselves that we're grieving for our own sin. That's not the way. That's not the point. The reality is, is it's not an abhorrency that I want someone else to necessarily see. It's between me and God. I'm not concerned so much about you knowing my own detestation of sin, but I am concerned about God and Him, of course, knowing all things. I'm not proving my abhorrency for my own sin to you, nor are you proving that to me. That is between God and myself. You see, we've, many times we've, we've gotten Christianity a little bit turned around and confused. We've started to really move into this. And again, I'm not making a blanket statement and I'm not painting this with a broad brush. But we've moved into a realm of Christianity that is more concerned about our accountability towards another individual sinner than we are about our accountability to God. 
And you realize that there's nothing wrong with having somebody hold you accountable. But remember, your accountability to another person is not the most important thing. Your accountability to God is that which matters. Accountability partners can be wonderful, but they can also be a very dangerous thing because you're talking about two people who are in the exact same situation. Someone's not more qualified because they abhor their sin more than you. Because I believe none of us will ever reach the place in this life where we truly fully understand just how bad and how awful sin is before God. Because if we truly did understand what sin really is, and again, don't take this the wrong way, we would have to make wholesale changes in our life across the board. All, every one of us would have to. I, I'm convinced of that. Because we don't fully understand what sin really is and what sin really does. Again, it doesn't change the character of God. Our sin doesn't make God any different. But it is still an abomination before Him. Those are the words that are used. And then you see in verse 32, not for your sakes do I this. God did not give us repentance for our sake. He gave us repentance for His namesake. He did it for His glory. He did it for His namesake. So before we move on a little bit further, let me give you just a few things we've already covered. We dealt with a little bit of this last week when we started talking about the saving repentance. But first of all, true repentance, remember, is an evangelical grace, not legal. Uh, repentance has to do with the gospel, not the law. Remember, repentance is not a work that makes us now right with God. Secondly, we know that true repentance is the result of conviction by the Holy Spirit. Now, I will tell you this without any hesitation. The Holy Spirit does not work on guilt manipulation. Do all of you understand what guilt manipulation is? All of us know how to guilt someone else. We've all been given that gift. We've all been given the gift to know how to make somebody else feel badly about their actions. It's not the most wonderful of gifts that we have, but we, are tended, we have a tendency to use it. We have a tendency to try to manipulate situations to make ourselves look better, make that person look worse. We manipulate the circumstances. We change just a little bit. We maybe change the story just a little bit. The Holy Spirit does not work on manipulation. The Holy Spirit is simply working on that which is. True Holy Spirit conviction does not manipulate you. It does not manipulate your emotions to where your emotions are the thing that's driving you to the next step. Although I think there's a natural outflow of emotions when we do have this self-abhorrency for sin. That's what true repentance really is. But it's not guilt manipulation. But remember, repentance is not just this, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry and I'm not doing all these things. Don't forget that the second component of repentance is the presence of a Christ-centered faith. There is no repentance without a faith that's centered on Christ. I don't care how sorry you feel about your sin or your wrongdoing. If there's not faith in Christ in addition, then it's, no, it's not repentance. It's just, I'm sorry for getting caught or I'm sorry I did something bad. But true repentance is always accompanied with Christ-centered faith. Repentance is not just simply turning away from a sin, but it's turning from sin with a focus on Christ. 
That's why we fully confirm and believe and affirm that the Lord is to be the Lord of our life, that repentance is not a one-shot deal that I've already taken care of that matter. It's an alarming thing. There are people who profess faith in Christ who, when you mention the word repentance, they say, I've already dealt with that. Do you mean today? No, I dealt with it the one time that I was saved. Remember, repentance is not a one-time thing. It is continual. It's a, it is a continuing of that, and it, but it is a turning of our away from sin with a focus on Christ. Repentance can be described with these terms. It's humility. It's godly sorrow. It's to detest sin. And as the word and phrase we've been using, it's a self-abhorrency. True repentance is not just being sorry because you got caught. If that was repentance, when I was a child, I was repenting daily. Because I always got caught. It is true. Mothers have eyes in the back of their head. I always got caught. Always. And I was always sorry when I got caught while the punishment was being considered. Because my thought was, the more I kind of accept and kind of submit to this, then the punishment might be lessened. Many times it wasn't. It was often filled with excuses as to why I did what I did, but I wasn't truly repentant. I was just sorry I got caught. That's not what true repentance spiritually is. It's not sorry that you've been declared to be something. It is the reality that I truly have in humility, I realize my own sin, I loathe my sin before a holy God, and I realize that I abhor my sin, and it's not just because God's told me what I am. Right? That's what we've talked about could be the danger in a watered-down gospel. It only has one component. Are you sorry that, for your sin? Well, what does that mean? Are you sorry you got caught? Or do you truly abhor to test your sin because your sin is an abomination to God? This fifth aspect of it is it's our approach, our approach to God. When we approach God in repentance, what are we doing? We're praying for a pardon. We're praying for mercy. We are throwing ourselves at the feet of God and we are saying, I plead with you, God, creating me a new heart. Forgive me, as we read in Psalm 51 last week. This is not just simply, I better get my repentance in for the day. This is truly coming before God, realizing what I really am. It's to pray for pardon. It's to pray for mercy. But it's also to pray for strength to continue. Folks, one of the great uh, dangers of repentance is that we think oftentimes we just dealt with it today or we dealt with it yesterday. We're going to need the strength because it's going to come back again. And it's going to come back again. And there are particular sins we'll deal with next week, how particular sins each one of us needs to realize repentance is not just a general, I'm sorry for every sin, even the ones I can't remember, but we're particular about specific, about this is what I'm repenting of, and I need the strength to no longer do this. Because you can't do it in yourselves, and I can't do it in myself. It's a conscious dependent upon the Spirit. When David was praying that that Psalm 51, 
Notice, remember what he said? He said, against you only have I sinned. Even when I sin against another person, my primary sin is not against you, it's against God. I've sinned against both parties, but primarily my sin is against God. Oftentimes we go to people and we make it right between each other, but do we go to God and make it right between ourselves and God? You know, it's possible for you to forgive and have a conversation with a person that you wronged or the other way, and you two could be good, and yet neither one of you ever went to God about it. Just because a relationship is fixed doesn't mean we dealt with it before God. Sometimes we just convince ourselves that if I'm okay, we're good, then we've already dealt with it, it's taken care of. But did you, did you go before God dependent upon what you've done against him. And then finally, it is a determination. Remember that we talked about diligence. We talked about how this is not something that's just, just you just get up and just assume I'm going to be able to make it through today. It's determined to walk unto God. It's determined to walk well-pleasing in his sight. I'm determining that I want to please God in all things. True and genuine repentance first and foremost, ultimately aims to please God, not man. Folks, if we're living our life to please someone else, we're living for the wrong reasons. If I'm living just to make sure you're happy with me, or I'm living just to make sure that uh, someone else is, is content with the way I live my life, I've got my priorities all wrong. A walk that is godly and pleasing unto God is going to be abrasive often. I don't mean this in a, in a terrible way, but when you try to walk to please God, you are going to walk so contrary to the world. It's going to seem like something's wrong with you. Uh, some of you are, are very familiar with, it's, it's now called Church and Family Life, but it used to be, it's, we're part of a network that's uh, the, for the National Council of Family Integrated Churches. Our church is listed on that. Well, Jen pointed out to me last night that there's a, there was a news flash that they put out yesterday that Church and Family Life has been banned for selling any of their products on Amazon because they were selling misleading information. Now, I don't have to tell you this. Do you know how much misleading information is all over? Do you realize that probably more than half of what you saw on the internet was not even true? And that most every, every book you buy from Amazon has got misleading information, but it's a conscious attack on the truth that was being established in those books and the establishment that this, this, this organization is now banned from selling these products because after a thorough review, we have found that your product contains misleading information. Half of Amazon should be shut down for selling misleading information. This has nothing to do with misleading information. This has to do with a hatred for God and a hatred for God's people. That's what it's all about. And folks, it's not going to get any easier. You, as a child of God who is trying to walk according to the principles of God, you are going to rub people the wrong way. And I'm not talking about being obnoxious. Because that's not God's way. But I am telling us and I'm calling us today to quit pandering to society and stand for what's right even when they say you're wrong. There are people all around us who think this church is pandering misleading information 
But yet what we're really given is the absolute only source of truth. You can cut this Bible in 50 different pieces and you're not going to find misleading information. You're going to find it put, the Bible is going to put its finger right on exactly what we are and who God is and what man must do to approach this God. And there will always be a hatred for God and for God's people. The problem is, is Christians can't stand being disliked. You're trying to please the wrong people. Why are we so concerned about what the ungodly think about us? It's not about us pleasing them. Well, I have to be soft and approachable. Not if it means compromising your convictions and compromising what you stand. Everybody who is anti-God has opinions. They all have places that they stand. Why are Christians so afraid to stand on what they believe in while the world around you is standing and they're proclaiming it and we're cowering in fear like we have nothing to offer? Oh, okay, okay. Listen, when you acknowledge who you are before God and you acknowledge what you are and that God has given you this tremendous gift of repentance, He has opened blind eyes, He's opened stopped ears, He's given unto the most unworthy persons the gift of salvation. Listen, don't be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Don't be ashamed of it. Some of you have very personal situations you have to deal with. You have family members that this is a problem. I understand it. But at some point, true repentance brings us to a place where not only are we focused on God, we have a a hatred of our sin, but we are saying, listen, I am determined I'm going to walk for God, and I'm sorry if my walk offends you, but I will not apologize for the truth. I'm not going to apologize for God's word. I'm not going to apologize for the way. I'm simply going to say, because my relationship with God is what it's supposed to be, I am going to have truly, true sorrow for my sin. I'm going to truly grieve for my own sins that I've committed. So repentance, true repentance, includes an actual turning away from sin. It's not just being sorry from it. Now I realize you start getting into the technicalities of what is an actual turning away from sin. Is it possible for a person to turn away from all sin? And of course, we know that it is impossible for us to never sin this side of glory. But Proverbs 28, 13, it's an unlikely place that you find this truth. But in Proverbs 28, 13, it says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. But, what's he go on to say? But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. You notice there's two components to that. There is the confessing and the forsaking of. A lot of our repentance today is okay with the confessing, but they're not all right with the forsaking. Remember, because repentance becomes kind of our get-out-of-jail-free card. Well, okay, I can daily repent because I know if I come every day, he has to forgive me. He's obligated to forgive me. Remember, I've told you over and over again, God is under no obligation to forgive anything. He is is not under obligation to you or I in any way, shape, or form. Well, yeah, he's got to keep his promises. There's a big difference in God keeping his promises and being in debt or obligation to you, and he is neither. 
He doesn't owe you anything and he doesn't, he's not obligated to you in any way. He determines the boundaries of your life, how long you live this life. It is his way that has set. But the, the writer of Proverbs, this section is dealing with righteous men. If you go a couple verses before, it said, Whoso causeth the righteous to go astray in an evil way, he shall fall himself into his own pit, but the upright shall have good things in possession. You realize that evil man or woman that tries to ensnare you and cause you to go astray, the Bible says that person will fall into their own pit. Don't be afraid of them. Be afraid of God. God's already got them under control. The rich man is wise in his own conceit, but the poor that hath understanding searcheth him out. When the righteous man do rejoice, there is great glory, but when the wicked rise, a man is hidden. Verse 14, happy is the man that feareth always, but he that hardeneth his heart shall fall into mischief. Folks, let me just warn you as strongly as I can. There is a hardening of the heart that can happen even in a believer's life. Don't believe this lie that says, well, God already softened my heart. God already opened my eyes. God unstopped my ears. I'm in no danger of my heart being hardened. You're in as much danger of your heart being hardened as you were before the day you were converted. There are hard-hearted Christians walking all around this world. There are people who have grown so hard, and I'm telling you, the number one reason they're hard-hearted is because they ignored their own sin and they didn't deal with it. They just simply said, it's not a big deal. I don't need to repent of this. And suddenly God's word now starts to become a hindrance to them getting in the way of their good time. And I'm talking about professing people. And in some cases, I'm talking about people who truly are converted. You are not beyond the realm of having a hardened heart and getting up one day and saying, you know what, this stuff of God, I'm done with it. Look, we don't know how damaging sin really is to ourselves. But remember, the primary problem with sin is not even what it does to us. It's that it's an offense against God. So it's a, it's a, it's a, a turning away. It's not just being sorry. The Bible also speaks of that repentance bears fruit. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. There is this principle that John, as he's, uh, of course, preaching repentance. John 3 is all about repentance. But he says in verse number seven, then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now what John's getting at here is he's identifying these religious people do not have fruits of repentance. So because they don't show these fruits of repentance, he's calling them vipers. And he said, who has told you about the wrath to come? And the reason he's making that assumption is because you have no fruits to demonstrate repentance has ever taken place. He says in verse five, or verse, um, verse eight, I'm sorry, bring forth, therefore, fruit, fruits worthy of repentance and begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Here's the problem the Pharisees had. They didn't want to repent. They just wanted to claim Abraham as the reason why they were acceptable to God. Folks, you're not acceptable to God because mom and dad are acceptable to God. Young people, you're not acceptable to God because your mom and dad bring you to church. You're only acceptable to God because of your own repentance and your own acknowledgement of your own sin. 
This is not about, I can claim this. John clearly tells them, and he says, And now also the axe is laid under the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit. What kind of fruit is he talking about? Fruits of repentance. Is hewn down and cast into the fire. And the people ask him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, like, let him do likewise. The reality is that he says, if you have true repentance, you will have fruits that demonstrate true repentance has taken place. There is this bearing of fruit. In other words, there must be a changed life. Back in Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel now, go to Ezekiel 18, if you would. And of course, this is many, many chapters before our text we read this morning. But look what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 18. Look with me at verse 30 and 31. Now, leading up to these verses in 30 through 32, Ezekiel has announced the word of the Lord. Oh, let, actually, let's just let's do this. Look at verse 24. But when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? Now, just for a moment, I want you to stop and think about what Ezekiel, the question he just asked. I want you to meditate on that for a minute. Because this is one of those alarming passages when you look at what he's actually asking. He says, when the righteous turn away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and doeth according, shall he live? All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned in his trespass that he hath trespassed and in his sin that he hath sinned. In them shall he die. Yet ye say, the way of the Lord is not equal. Here now, O house of Israel, is not my way equal? Are not your ways unequal? When a righteous man turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity and dieth in them, for his iniquity that he hath done, shall he die. Again, when the wicked man turneth away from his wickedness that he hath committed and doeth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. Because he considereth and turneth away from all his transgressions that he hath committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. For the crowd that says repentance has nothing to do with turning away from sin, what did Ezekiel just declare? He clearly says there is to be a turning away. Now, is it perfection? No. But it is an ultimate desire that I want to turn away. I detest my sin so much, I don't want anything to do with it, and I am fighting tooth and nail to please God. I am not on spiritual cruise control. And that ultimately is what we find ourselves so many times doing. We're just on Christian cruise and we just think, isn't Christianity great? But my question is, are we actually turning away from sin and are we actually dealing with our sin or have we just kind of brushed it aside and said, I'll deal with that another day? I'm assuring you this morning, as sure as I'm standing here, that will lead to a hardened heart. And there will come a point in time when you will no longer want to even forsake your sin anymore. You'll actually start to say, you know what, it's not so bad. Folks, and this doesn't happen like a light switch. 
This is slow and is progressive and it happens time over time over time. And you look up and you say, you know what? I used to detest that in myself and now I don't even care anymore. Because I'm doing all the Christian things. I'm hospitable. I have people to my house. I tell everybody good day when I see them. I give to the church. I come to church. But I haven't dealt with my sin in a long, long time. Matter of fact, I've got sin in my life right now. I've not, I don't even hate it anymore. It doesn't even bother me anymore. And when the wicked man turneth away from his wickedness that he hath committed and doeth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul and live because he considers and turns away from his transgressions that he hath committed. He shall surely live and he shall not die. Yet say at the house of Israel, again, I realize the context, the way of the Lord is not equal. Israel always had a response to God. You know what happened to Israel? Their heart got hardened to where they no longer, they started to question God's equality. Is, is equality a buzzword in our society today by any chance? Or am I living under a rock? Everything's about equality. Everything is about, you know, everything has to be equal. Is that really the problem? Is equality really the problem? Is that really at the heart of this? Or is the reality that we just don't like God's ways? Folks, what you see happening is a rebellion against God and against God's authority. This is not a, a, a rebellion against politics. It's not a rebellion against government. Uh, it, it disguises itself as a whole lot of things. It is a, there is no fear of God before their eyes. We're going to do what we want to do whenever we want to do it because this God is a merciless, angry, non-loving God. He's bigoted. He's hateful. We want nothing to do with him. It is a hardening of the heart and turning their back on God and saying, I want nothing to do with this God. If you're spending your time spinning your Christian wheels, trying to change society through politics and through government, you are wasting your time. I have a plan for us. Why don't we all deal with our own sin? Look at ourselves in the mirror and say, you know what? My accountability before God matters more than what I think about government, more than what I think about politics, and focus on the reality of our own sin. Imagine if everybody actually focused on themselves in that manner instead of everybody, the selfie generation, said, hey, look at me. God's not interested in a selfie generation that's more consumed with its own pride. No, God wants people on their knees and saying, listen, I am God. To accuse God of being guilty of inequity. Doesn't Genesis tell us that God always does what's right? Always does what's right? That means he's never done a single wrong thing. But you don't even understand that until you come to a reality of who you really are. You quit arguing for equality when you know who God is. You quit arguing and saying, you know what, this life's about me. Your salvation's not even about you. Years and years and years, I was felt pretty good about myself that God died for me so that I can enjoy. No, he died for his name's sake. He died that his name might be glorified. Now notice the, the end of this chapter. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his way, saith the Lord God. Repent and turn yourselves 
from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Again, I ask all of the believers, Christians, who say repentance is just repent, but you don't have to turn away from sin. That's not what Ezekiel says. Or do we want to just say, this is all, this is just what God expects of Israel. No, this is what he expects of his people. Cast away from you all your transgressions whereby you have transgressed and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. Don't blame the sovereignty of God and the election of God for your lack of desire to repent. That's the new thing now. All you people that believe in the doctrines of grace, God just simply makes you a robot. You can't repent. There is nobody or God keeping you from repenting this morning in any way, shape, or form. God is not keeping you from running to Christ right now. God is not keeping you, and He's not saying, no, 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 wait a minute. Wait till I elect you. Stop perverting the Bible. That's not what this is. Every man is responsible for his response to God. The gospel has always been a command, not an invitation. It's repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not for your consideration. It's not for your investigation. It's not for you to determine whether this is for you or not for you. Or I'm going to take the gospel and I'm going to compare it to all the other world religions. And if the gospel pans out to be the best one for me, I'll choose that one. No, it's a command. When we give the gospel, we're not asking people to say, would you just take this little pamphlet and consider this? It's a commandment. God says, repent. What does he say right there? I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth. Stop accusing my God of inequity. And the only way you're ever going to do that is remember, why in the world are you and I even a part of his family? Because you don't deserve it, neither do I. If God truly did everything in our eyes that was right, all of us are damned to hell without any hope, any hope of escape. But yet the only reason you are is because you were, you brought, you brought, you were brought to repentance and you believe the gospel. This turning away from sin, the confession is very careful to use the expression. Notice again what it says, and I know we're going over, so bear with me. Praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor. You know what endeavor means? To endeavor, it, it means to set your sights upon with the idea of nothing stopping you from accomplishing that. The confession writers were very, very careful in the wording that they use. And I realize some people have a hard time with the original words of the confession because it's some of its older language. But I also find there's a great beauty in it. There's a beauty in the reality that he says, not only do we pray for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. How are we going to walk before God pleasing? By walking in the Spirit. This is not a pull yourselves up by your bootstraps mentality. This is walking in the spirit that you already have within you. This is not grieving the Holy Spirit. This is yielding yourself to the spirit. This is why what we'll look at next week, why paragraph four will show us why ongoing repentance is a part 
of the daily walk of the believer. So we'll look at paragraph four uh, next week. Again, I know I've gone way over, so let me just pray and we'll be, we'll be dismissed. If you have individual questions that you just can't wait till next week to ask, I'll be up here at the front. You can come and talk to me or you can hold them for next week. And again, I promise we'll make some time at the end. Uh, paragraph four is a little bit shorter of a, a paragraph, so we'll deal with some questions next week. Okay, let's pray. Father, we come before you again and we thank you for the privilege of being in possession of the truth. And Father, I do pray that this lesson, this message has been given not in the spirit of the flesh, but it's been given in the spirit of God. Lord, we know that we all are open before you. Uh, there is nothing that we can hide. Uh, there is nothing we can keep. Uh, Lord, you know our hearts, you know our motives, you know our desires. Uh, Lord, we can, we can hide many of these things from even our closest family and friends. But Father, may you give us a heart like David. May we truly look at sin, our sin, for what it is. Lord, help us to take our eyes off of the sin of going on around us, the sin of others, and determine to look at our own life. Father, what a great awakening in our own soul could take place if we would truly center on our accountability to you. Father, thank you for allowing us this time. And Lord, I pray that you would continue through the conversations that we have in between services to just edify and encourage each other. Lord, I do pray that you bless the service to follow. And it's in Christ's name I ask these things. Amen. All right. Thank you so much.